Hi everyone, I'm Ben Tapper and this is Invisible Truths. This is a podcast for anyone who carries burdens that feel too heavy to bear, questions too vulnerable to openly discuss, or pain that you're certain no one else will understand. Even more than that though, this is a space to acknowledge and explore the invisible truths within each of us. If you're still interested, let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another week of the Invisible Truths podcast. As you know, I'm your host, Ben Tapper, and I'm here with a friend of mine who's a director at an Indiana nonprofit named Matt Burke. And Matt, I'm, I'm excited that you're here today because of the conversations we've already had about emotional depth and intimacy as men, and I look forward to what we can continue to unpack together in this next hour or so. So welcome to the show. Thank you for being on here today. Yeah, thanks, Ben. I appreciate the invitation. I'm looking forward to the conversation as well. So as you may or may not know, um, most of my guests on the show are not white men. I think I've had two, maybe, so you're the third. So it's a pretty prestigious uh, list of folks here. Um, But one of the things that intrigues me about the way white men are socialized is this idea of what it means to have the freedom to express um, all emotions, not just, you know, anger. Uh, and as you and I have spoken, you, you mentioned being um, a white man, um, a, mi- a middle-aged white man, that you internalized the message uh, that you had to suppress your emotions and kind of keep them in check in favor of your, your logic or your reason. And I'm wondering if you can unpack that and maybe uh, tell us when you first recall kind of receiving those messages. Well, first of all, I need to address being addressed as a middle-aged white man. <laughs> I knew you were I going am to. so <laughs> sad right now. I'm so sad. I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> More so the middle age thing, I suppose. But then again, you know, being identified as a white male too. Uh, <laughs> listeners, please don't hate. <laughs> I'm an okay guy. Yes, you, you wouldn't be on the podcast if you weren't. <laughs> All right, cool. So, uh, yeah, stuffing down emotions, man. I was a kid with big emotions. And so I think it was difficult for my dad. I could maybe spin out a story if I think about it long enough, but I just kind of remember a narrative of feeling like I was too much for my, for my father, especially. Um, and well, I'll give an instance. We went to Gatlinburg and I saw one of those booths where, you know, you get your picture taken and they put you on a cover of a magazine. So I was super excited about that. I was probably eight years old. And, um, it was a soldier, so they put, you know, like some black paint on my face and I, you know, the whole whole nine yards. And uh, they took the picture and something went wrong and it was the last template they had in that in that style. And I was really disappointed. And I cried like a lot. Mm. And I remember like wanting to cry a lot as a kid. Um, and I cried, oh man, we had to walk back to the car and it was maybe a good solid five minutes I was crying. And finally my dad had had enough and just told me that it needed to stop. Um and that's a, a vivid memory I have of my emotions not being okay. Yeah, especially at, at quite a young age, I can imagine. I think, you know, when we're that young, we don't even know what we're internalizing. It just kind of happens, right? Um, and that can then become a, the bedrock of that foundation of learning to when your emotions might not be okay. Yeah, and it's interesting watching uh, my youngest son seems like he's a lot like I was at that age. And so it's interesting being on the other side of that as the adult father and watching him grapple with his emotions. So um, it's it's been a good learning experience, too. What was that processing for you like um, as you moved into your adolescence and teenage years? How do are you aware of how you were thinking about or understanding all the emotions that you were 
experiencing during that phase? Yeah, I don't know that I was super reflective at that point, at least about emotions. Um, there was probably a good bit of unconscious uh, experiencing of emotions, and, and there definitely was a a conflict between emotions and behavior. Um, I remember one time uh, I was really upset. I think it had to do with a girlfriend in high school. I think my great-grandmother had just passed. Mm. And um, I was probably more emotionally upset about the girlfriend than I was the great-grandmother because I wasn't super close to her. But I just remember a conflict with my dad. And, and looking back on that, I know that there was just a welter of emotions happening in me that I didn't know what to deal with. But in in my experience of growing up, and especially with my dad as as the role model for me, um, that complexity was not okay. Things were very black and white. Like you, you, you know, you do your duty, you act appropriately and there's not really room or space for how you feel. Mm. Like that doesn't matter. You just, you, you do what you need to get done. Yeah. Yeah. I, I recall getting a similar message from, from my uh, adoptive family. Actually, we had this kind of motto, uh, that motto is too strong of a word. It's something I internalized. I don't know if others in the family felt the same way, but I internalized this message of life sucks, move on, right? Meaning stuff happens, you feel a certain way, but you can't let that get in the way of what you have to do day in and day out. And so just kind of bottle it up, put it to the side, and then do what you have to do because there's always something you have to do, Um, which I think it's important to know how to do that at certain times, but you also have to know how to return back to those things because I found that if I don't process something, it always affects me. I just I'm not aware of that effect, you know, and then I have unintended consequences of it. Um, so when do you when did you start to become aware of the effects of of those emotions that you had put to the side? Oh man, it's probably not been until the last four or five years, maybe. Okay. Yeah, and I don't, I can't even pinpoint necessarily the 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 exact moment of that. Um, one of the things that happened to me about five or six years ago is I had a I had a pretty bad uh, tobacco addiction since I was probably like seventeen. And I did not realize how much that addiction was helping me keep my emotions bottled up. So the message that I got was those emotions aren't good, aren't healthy, you know, or not not healthy, but not appropriate. And so I did not realize how much I was relying on a, a substance to to keep those emotions at bay. Mm. And it kind of came to a head with my wife. We had a pretty big conflict about it, about that addiction, and then. Um, trying to get away from that, then opened the door to a lot of anxiety in my life, a lot of depression, uh, started seeking counseling, which I had done before, but it wasn't super helpful at the time. But really it's, it's been in the last, I'd say five years that I've, I've fully realized how damaging, uh, bottling up emotions were for me in terms of, you know, relying on a substance, not being a a really well-rounded person, uh, by allowing my emotions out, allowing them to shape me and dealing with them. So it's, it's been a, it's been a rough road of trying to, like you said, return to those emotions to be able to process them. But now we're talking about emotions that are 20, 30 years old. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I I can't speak for your experience, but, um, it's tough for me not even always remembering what events happened that triggered this emotion that I'm experiencing. Right. And so, it's not impossible to process something, but it feels like it makes it a little bit harder because I really, I want, I want things to make sense. I just, I want, um, I don't like a lot of mess in my life emotionally and as laid back as I am, I still want to be able to at least understand why I feel 
kind of crazy because I, I do sometimes, right? And I'd like to at least know why, even if I can't stop feeling that way. But when I can't remember what happened, sometimes I can't even know why. I just have to kind of accept that it happened. And that's that's really hard for me to accept. I, I don't know if you have a similar experience. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's been explained before to me that, you know, humans are meaning-making machines. So we want to understand uh, and sometimes we grasp onto false concepts in, in, in trying to understand something. Um, but, but I think I'm in that same boat that, and in fact, even in therapy, uh, or even with like medical doctors, like, I don't, I don't just want to go in and them to tell me do this and you'll be better. It's like, no, how is, how am I going to be better? Why is this going to help me be better? Even into, you know, being curious about different types of therapy with, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy versus emotionally focused therapy versus, you know, psychodynamic therapy. Um, it's important for me to kind of get behind the scenes and understand what the, what the point is, because if I don't understand the point of it, it's really hard for me to grab onto it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's, if that's kind of in the vein of what you're talking about, but, and, and so not only just the, the measures that we take to try to get better, but also, um, yeah, like I want to understand why I'm sad. Mm -hmm. I want to understand why I'm depressed. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I've recently, I've started doing a little bit better with that. And, and some days, a, a Tuesday, random Tuesday, I'll roll around and I'll just be down and just be in a, just a foul mood and not okay. And it'll hit me in the middle of the day. It's like, oh yeah, I struggle with depression. And something about that, even though it's, it's not a direct correlation to a situation or circumstance, it still helps because it's like, Oh yeah. So this is just a thing <laughs> and I always get past this thing. So we'll just ride it out and things will be all right. And it actually has made, uh, managing depression a lot, a lot more easy, uh, understanding that it's just, you know, it's just something that's there. Yeah. And, and those listening that haven't experienced depression, maybe wondering how on earth you could forget, but I can attest to that. I mean, I can, if you have a string of like good days or even good weeks, then when it pops back up, it catches you off guard. You know, um, as a as a high functioning trauma survivor, sometimes I move through the world as if I don't even have trauma. Like I just, it's not the forefront of my mind. And then when it comes up, I feel shocked. Should I feel shocked? Probably not. It doesn't go away. But you know, you just you get in a groove, and it it's easy to to put those things out of your mind. Yeah, and I think you know, I don't know if this if this is part of it or not either, but. You know, we don't we don't like to remember the bad parts of ourselves or the right. broken parts of ourselves. And so um, and we also don't want to necessarily always be looking on to the next bad thing. So it's not like I live every day thinking like, oh, my gosh, when's my next depression going to hit? Yeah, uh, I mean, I can understand and, and empathize that people may do that uh, and, and they might that might be a concern on their minds. But that's not something that I, I deal with. And, and I think also it's such a I don't know about you, Ben, and your trauma background. But for me, it's it's usually such a um, a slide into it as opposed to just this sudden onset. Right. And when that, when it happens that way, I think it's easy to forget because you're just dealing with and thinking about day-to-day -day life and not kind of the 30,000 foot view of the patterns of your existence. Yeah. I, I, that's a good point. I think I probably slide into it too, but I'm not aware that the slide's happening. You know, I'll just, I'll right. have a few different markers that string together and it's only after all of them are there and I'm in the depression that I look back and I'm like, oh, okay, this all makes sense. You know, like it might start with a few bad nights of sleep. Then I get some random like family drama that pops up. And then all of a sudden by day three, I feel terrible. And I, I wasn't recognizing the signs that, oh, this is probably coming. 
Um, so, so yeah, to your point, the slide happens. I just don't think I catch the markers before they happen usually. That sounds very familiar. You know, I think a lot of people can relate to this idea of being told that they have to suppress their emotions or coming from families where things like counseling or therapy aren't valued. You know, I know in communities of color and black communities, Latinx communities, it's still an uphill battle trying to get people to even talk about counseling, let alone to go and see a counselor. Um, and some of that is, is legitimate. You know, healthcare professionals and institutions have definitely done some really shady shit to communities of color. Um, and so some of it is legitimate, but part of it is, is just some sort of um, fear about opening up, some sort of toxic masculinity that I think uh, we've inherited, maybe specifically as black men. But I'm wondering if, if you um, have have found something unique to to your experience as, as a white man about this call to, to bother your emotions, not only in your life, but you've spoken with other white men that have experienced something similar. And, and so I'm wondering... Um, what what you can point out from your upbringing from other folks like you that you say, yeah, this feels like it might be kind of unique to to being a white man in this culture, if anything. Well, it's I think it has a lot to do with role models and and modeling behavior more so than direct instruction that you're supposed to bottle up your emotions. Um, you know, I grew up at, I'm 45. So, you know, my uh, early years were in the eighties that I can remember really well, middle school, and then into high school in the early nineties. And, um, I've always loved film and, and television. And, and what's funny is I, I always have resonated with, uh, the character of the lone hero who sacrifices and doesn't need. Mm-hmm. And I think, it's it's not a, a character type that's good for me, <laughs> yep. but it's the character type that showed me this is what you're supposed to be, and 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 I and that's what I got from you know being raised in my home, uh, in the the congregational situation that I found myself in, that you just consistently saw white men not emoting, and those that did emote, there always seemed to be a level of embarrassment in people seeing that person emoting that it was not okay. Now, anger, that might be a little bit different, but other other types of emotions, especially sadness, grief, um, things like that, were not super acceptable. Mm-hmm. And I think it was more just watching the culture that I was raised in and seeing that people just don't do that. Mm-hmm. You had no role model by which to understand how to process emotion or maybe even how to recognize the emotion. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, you don't know what to do with it because you don't see models of people dealing with those things in healthy ways mm. and expressing grief or, or sadness and, you know, just weeping openly in order to allow that emotional curve to to do its work. You see people excusing themselves, bottling it up, apologizing for crying um, and, you know, just uh, a level of just enculturation uh, that that was just there. And I think, you know, it is it is embedded a lot in toxic masculinity uh, that has been part and parcel to our culture for a very long time, at least in white culture, uh, that is just, you know, that is not something that men do. Mm-hmm. Men bite their lip and carry on and just deal. Uh, but I think that's what's potentially has led to having such deep issues with anxiety and depression because of so many years of not being able to deal with emotion yeah and and i i also wonder if not only does it contribute to anxiety and depression but if it contributes to um one's propensity to abuse another person 
um, or to participate in abusive systems. Like at some point, if you're bottling and internalizing things, it's going to come out some way. You know, I'm aware that the vast majority of um, serial killers are white men. The vast majority of um, people that are involved in like mass shootings in recent history have been white men. And so as I look at it, I think, well, if, if this is a group of people that isn't taught how to handle their emotions, how to name them, how to process them, then it makes sense that there'd be a higher propensity for these emotions to come out some way. Um, but that could be an oversimplification. I'm wondering if you've connected some of the same dots that you've processed. So you're straight up calling me a sociopath is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> like, Hey, here's a white guy, middle-aged white guy has anxiety and depression issues. Dude's going to straight up go postal. So everybody watch out. <laughs> Not you specifically. Uh, okay. But you know, I, I wonder about that. There's got, there are reasons that it seems to be a certain segment of the population is acting in these ways, um, whereas others aren't. And so, I, you know, that yeah. makes me think about socialization. I think that the faith tradition that I grew up in, the, the worst things you could do were to be to drink, to smoke, or to have sex, right? Like those are just seem to be like the worst possible things that, that somebody could do. And so if you did that, you were kind of beyond the pale. And so it was interesting growing up in that and exploring that uh, throughout you know, most of my years or into my early 20s until I, I decided that I thought that faith tradition wasn't the right one for me. Um, but it was just inter so interesting that there was such an intense focus on those behaviors. But as I've learned more about uh, emotions and psychology and counseling and therapy, uh, those are symptoms of deeper problems mm -hmm. that you don't smoke because you're a bad person and you like nicotine in your body right chances are you are doing that because it provides you with a pleasant habit and sensation that is helping you escape from some kind of pain yeah and so i i find it incredibly unsurprising and again just speaking from the faith to the conservative evangelical faith tradition that i'm from it is completely unsurprising to me that you have high incidences of hypocrisy where people speak out against certain types of behaviors but then secretly engage in those behaviors and and that is is at least correlated with uh, an environment where we don't deal with emotion well. Not dealing with emotions has repercussions, and you, there has to be some mechanism to recover from emotional damage. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have a healthy mechanism, then you will find an unhealthy mechanism. You will find overeating. You will find alcohol. You will find uh, turning to sex, you know. There will, will be something. And so I, I think that um, while the examples that you provided were definitely the extreme examples, I think there's definitely an undercurrent of that in, in male, white male uh, culture because we don't have a way to healthily deal with the problem, our internal problems in our internal world. It doesn't exist. Now that you're aware that the work needs to be done and you've been on this journey of trying to do it more intentionally, have you found models or, or how have you figured out what it means to name and process your emotions in a healthy way? Well, I definitely have a spouse that deeply cares about it and is not, uh, was never insistent upon me being a typical kind of male. So that was incredibly helpful. Um, when I went through dealing with my addiction, my tobacco addiction, I started attending a 12 step program and the men in that 12 step program, it was amazing the amount of transparency, the amount of emotion and everyone was okay with all of that. And so it was a it was an entire community of people 
where it was understood that we all have issues and problems and emotions and coping mechanisms and it it it's normal yeah and it's the first time that i'd seen a community on that scale and it was a really really beautiful place to be it was beautiful to be a part of that experiencing something like that and that depth i know for me it's hard then to have to go back into what i would call my quote real or regular life you know if i don't feel like those elements or people are part of that life did you experience or have you experienced a similar difficulty transitioning no not really because i think it's like any community that the comfort of a community isn't necessarily that it's ever present but you know that you are not strange and that you are there is a place where you are accepted Mm. And that's actually one of the beautiful things about that group is I haven't been for maybe two years, but I guarantee there are guys still going uh, that I knew and met back then. And if I did choose to to reattend, and by the way, I didn't leave because of any problem or issue with them. It was just my life schedule and things like that. There's just a whole host of things. Uh, had nothing to do with anything negative in that environment. Um, but if I were to step back in there now, there would be no judgment. They would be happy to see me. You know, I could jump right in and, and share along with everybody else about what's really going on in my life. Uh, and so just knowing that that exists is helpful enough. <laughs> and also that I'm not weird in that I need I need that. I need to be able to disclose what's really going on in my life to people. And it just makes it easier to do that. And, and also you learn how to feel out new relationships or maybe even old relationships, whether people are going to be okay with that or not. Mm -hmm. You learn how to express yourself in that way. And then you can begin to kind of feel out, is this a person that I can disclose to who will hear what I have to say? Or am I going to see them get uncomfortable or embarrassed as I start talking about certain things? So therefore they're not a safe person to have this conversation with. Yeah. As you think about your role as a husband, as a father, what does it mean for you to try to model Um, a healthy management or processing of your emotions in each of those contexts? Well, one is just encouraging our kids to, to allow their emotions. I think the, the socialization of emotional suppression, boy, that was a mouthful. It was. I said, wow, it's a PhD (laughs) thesis. I, I think that happens very early on in, in white culture. And so, um, I think, helping my kids understand that as they grow into their teen years or even younger, that every emotion is, is okay. Now what you do with emotions is a different story, but whatever emotions you are feeling, it is okay. And I did not get that message. So that's one of the, the things that I'm trying to do. And another is to also um, work past my shame, my lingering shame of my emotions. Uh, the other night, what were we watching? We were watching uh, the Dude Perfect documentary, okay. <laughs> of all things, um, and and they're at towards the end of that documentary. Spoiler alert: uh, they're doing a show, and there's a kid who was supposed to come to that show, but he's been diagnosed with leukemia, and his doctors say he can't come. And so these these guys who are going to be at this you know sold out arena doing this show decide, you know what, we're going to go visit this kid because he can't come. So they go and spend time with them and they're they're people of faith and so towards the end of it they were you know praying for the kid around the table but but genuinely like with real you know care it wasn't wasn't pro uh, pro forma kind of prayer uh and and my son my oldest son who's 11 was watching this with me and without looking at me he said daddy are you crying and and i and i was and i said yes and then so i've noticed that that's a pattern with my kids is they 
they are really intrigued by me crying. Mm-hmm. Um, so just allowing myself to to model that 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 yeah, dad can show emotion. Dad can be touched by a story. Um, dad can you know rejoice in something that's happening, and and just allow that emotion to be. And I'm really hoping that that will stick for them, and be. Uh, a source of strength to show them they can show their emotion too. Yeah, I have to believe that it it will stick. You know, I remember being around that age and looking to my dad as the model for me for what it meant to be a, a man. You know, and then once you hit your teen years, or at least once I hit my teen years, I started to question that some. Um, but even still, like worst case scenario, you're using your father as uh, the basis to figure out what you want to do or, or what you don't want to do, right? Either way, there's still a model that you're judging yourself against. And so for, for them, for their model to be willing to not only cry, but to admit and name it in a family gathering. And I have to believe that they're going to be able to, to carry that with them, um, not only for themselves, but then that'll affect how they orient themselves towards others, maybe their future partners or spouses as well. Uh, and that, that just seems like such a wonderful practice. Yeah, I hope so. Um, you know, they'll they'll pick up bad things too <laughs> by watching me. Sure. My wife and I often say it's not a question of whether they'll be in therapy, it's just what for. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um and, and, and have you noticed ways that this this new emotional awareness has shifted your marriage? Yeah, I mean it's definitely made me freer to be who who I am in front of my wife that um there was a lot of shame tied to uh, my addiction and, and, you know, I, I've heard it said in the counseling world that whenever, especially for substance abuse, whenever you start us, whenever a substance abuse problem begins for you, you stop developing at that stage. Mm. And so as, uh, as people who go through substance abuse counseling and they might be 65 years old, but they may be emotionally reverting back to who they were at 16 because that's whenever that addiction began. And I, I can't speak to the truth of that. I don't have studies. I, I can tell you that it resonates with my experience uh, that six years ago, I was the equivalent of about a 17-year-old emotionally. And so um, it has been a, a, a cool journey to feel like I'm finally growing up in that area and um, my wife has been very supportive in that. In fact, she's doing her master's in mental health counseling right now. So she understands the value of therapy and um, just gives me a lot of a lot of grace, which is which is nice. And it feels like you made a tremendous amount of progress then if just six years ago you would name that you were emotionally a 17 year old. I mean, that it has to feel like you have come such a long way, right? Well, it depends on what you age me at emotionally <laughs> right now. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe I'm about twenty uh, ish. I don't know. I mean, I still there's still a lot of progress to be made and a lot of lingering. It's and you know, even talking about my kids, that I still have a hard time allowing my emotion in front of them because of the enculturation. Because enculturation is so powerful. Yeah. And um. I mean, it is great that I've seen a lot of progress, but I definitely am not where I want to be. And I'm not as free and easy as I would like to be in my own skin. Sure. Sure. I think that's probably true for for a lot of us. I think about my own journey and, you know, I still struggle to be free emotionally in counseling, right? And in theory, that is the one space that I should be the safest, but it is still hard 
to like let myself just cry like ugly cry that that body shaking ugly ass cry that you do when you just can't control it you know I'm I'm slowly getting there and I'm crying more and more but I've been seeing my therapist for a year and a half right and it took me 15 or 16 of those 18 months to get to the point where I was willing to consistently just cry around her um so that man the work itself is just so difficult um and and then there are lessons that you learn and you have to have, have to go back and learn them at a deeper level and that i guess what i'm saying is there are so many layers to this that that even no matter how well you think you're doing there's always more to do and i think that'll always be the case for us probably yeah yeah i think that's true and it's interesting you know one of your initial questions was about the experience as a as a middle-aged white male um just even how we express ourselves in our bodies and I, i've recently in the last probably f- three or four years become jealous of of black men mm. because i see how they embody their emotion mm. and they embody surprise or laughter or or even anger and it's as white men not only are we taught to bottle up our emotions but i think we bottle up our physicality also that we are so minimally physically expressive and I, I think that's harmful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I'm jealous of cultures that have that freedom of movement to show themselves in their body. Because that's another thing that white culture is very, at least the culture that I was raised in, white culture, is very much in your brain and intellectual, right? Yeah. That your body's bad. And so you don't you don't pay much attention to it. You don't really, you know, deal with it much. Right. Um, so that's been an interesting dichotomy that I've seen between cultures. And even if, um, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about mainline uh, Protestant white culture, which is, you know, if you go to a, a Presbyterian church, as an example, they often call themselves the frozen chosen, right? So you sit through a worship service and people aren't moving very much at all. There's definitely not dancing or anything like that. But even in more um, charismatic traditions of white Protestantism, where there might be more movement, more dancing and service, there's still some of these messages about the body and the flesh that, that define it as evil or juxtaposed against the spirit. And so I, I think either way you go, in our culture at large, in white culture specifically, there are, there are messages you can pick up that tell you your body's bad and that make it difficult to, to feel as comfortable as you need to in your own skin to express yourself through movement. Yeah, it was funny because the fir- first part of your commentary there, uh, I was thinking in my head, it's like, yeah, but you're screwed on the other side with the with the holiness traditions because like movement might be okay, but it's also don't don't you dare dance, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't dance or even I mean back to your earlier point, um, sex is a, a way like that you can express yourself with your body, can express your emotions, and there's still large parts of of Christian culture specifically that that define sex as okay, but only in one very specific context. Um, and so, you know, regardless of which way you go, I think there can be a lot of messages that make it hard for you to really have a healthy relationship with your body. Yeah. And I think that's part of, uh, just trouble with emotions too, because emotions, you know, it lives in your body Mm -hmm. and there's tons of good, you know, books and works on that very subject. But so it's not only, well, and, and that's kind of part of the, the white guy lockdown on emotions, right? Is you're, you're locking down your body, you're locking down tears, you're locking down facial expressions, you're locking down ways that your body wants to move because of an overpowering emotion. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's kind of both the same thing. It's not this, it's not that the, psycholo- the psychological is divorced from the physical. They're very much integrated in it together. 
and and I think those problems are are also tied together. Yeah. And if you could go back to your 12-year-old self now, you know, and, and you had the ability to step back in time and just uh, leave one sentence, one image, something for your 12-year-old self to find and ruminate on, do you have an idea of what, what that message would be and what it would look like? It'd be something in the neighborhood of, of buddy, you're, you're good enough mm. and, and you're going to be all right. I really, really could have used that when I was, when I was young. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very powerful message. I can relate to that message. It's one of the realizations I've had in the last few years that as I've watched our culture begin to fall apart, especially because of politics and news media being what it is. And I don't, I I think Ben, we're all there. Like I think adults at heart, we're still all scared little kids. Yeah. And some of us understand that and are trying to take steps to rectify it and others are oblivious and just continue to bull through life without understanding that. Uh, so, yeah, I agree that that is a message that everyone needs to hear and is true mm. that, you know, you're, you're okay. Yeah. And, and you're going to make it. Yeah. Uh, and if we could really embrace that and, and only not only embrace that personally, but embody that to one another, man, would our culture be a different place? You're spot on in all of that. And I think especially naming adults as just scary little, little children. Um, I had this experience a couple weeks ago where I was sitting in my bedroom and I was was crying and I no longer remember why I was crying. But as I was crying, I, I got this image or this vision of myself. And it was a, a memory fragment from a time when I was maybe somewhere between six and eight. And I remember the a dark motel room I remembered my um, bio mom and stepdad leaving for the evening and I just saw my younger self and how scared he was you know that he had to try to keep everyone safe keep his siblings safe he didn't know what to do he was freaked out and I just like brought myself into that imagining and just gave him a hug and told him that he was going to be all right that it was going to be all right that he wasn't alone and he never would be um, and then I just grabbed his hand and helped him do things around the room. And it was such a healing and powerful visualization, uh, for me. And I've had many moments like that, but every time I do that, this, this notion that within me are those, it's like I'm frozen in time at certain ages and all those parts of me make up who I am and how I show up in the world. And they're going to, whether I acknowledge them or not. So I may as well do the work of, of healing so that I can acknowledge them, um, yeah, thanks for sharing that, man. Yeah, yeah. Inner child work is so, so powerful. As we have sat and talked, I'm wondering if you have any question that you want to ask me. Yeah, I'd be curious as to, um, you know, I've talked about my experience as being a white male, and I'm curious about your perception mm. of emotionality in white males. I experience them as very subdued emotionally. Um, you can tell there's a lot happening internally that doesn't, get brought into the external world. Um, but I guess I don't experience a whole lot of emotionality or emotion expressed from my my white male friends. To, to be honest, I think that's true of my male friends in general. It's a little more acute in my white uh, guy friends, but I experience the, that lack of expression in non-white male friends too. Um, there's something about being men in this culture that we've all internalized that that makes it difficult to to 
to really live into our bodies, to share our emotions with one another, to sh- even share our bodies with one another. Like I was talking to a friend a few weeks ago and I've got female friends that like if they're hanging out, they might cuddle or they might hold hands and it's not that deep. Um, but never, I would never consider doing that with any of my guy friends and vice versa, right? It just wouldn't cross my mind. Um, and so I think there are a lot of ways that we've internalized ideas that limit us uh, as men broadly. It just might be more acute for some of my white friends than my, my, my friends of color. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and finally, you know, I want to know if you could distill uh, your thoughts around this topic, the things and the themes we have covered in this interview, if you could distill them into a, a grounding practice, um, a, an idea that, that people can ruminate on, what would you want the audience to, to know, uh, specifically if there are other white men listening to this, what would you want them to be reflecting on um, so that they can continue to chew on some of the, some of the themes that we've talked about today? Man, that's a tough question. I feel so much pressure. It's only one thing. (laughs) (laughs) I I would say find some way to, to try to move into an understanding of, uh, therapy and counseling. Mm. It doesn't mean they have to go. Now, that would, of course, be like number one, like, yes, please go find find a therapist. I promise you it'll be good. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, that might be a a step too far. But, you know, find a a book on therapy, get some recommendations about it, or find a podcast or some online articles to just understand that it's out there, it's helpful, and... Uh, just try to find some way to gain a little bit more of a comfort level with it, even if you don't partake of it yourself, but being aware that it's out there, that as you encounter others, uh, to not be judgmental or to understand what it is that they're going through. And putting on your resource consultant hat, are there a couple places that you'd recommend to start or that you found helpful? Well, Hillary McBride, I'm a huge fan of her work. Uh, She has a podcast called Other People's Problems, and she is a licensed therapist, and she actually gets permission from clients and records sessions, uh, which is a really interesting thing. Um, For for some men, uh, there's a book, The Body Keeps the Score, which is essentially about how our emotional and internal world affects our physicality. Um, I heard a stat, I have no idea if this is true or not, but some ridiculously high percentage of back pain is actually tied to uh, being tense because of emotional issues. Um, take that for what it's worth. I don't know, but the book is well-researched and, and the, the, the author has a pretty good understanding of these things. Uh, those are a couple places that you might start. Um, I'm a huge fan of Mike McHarg. He is not a, a practitioner of therapy, but has gone through a very long journey uh, as a white male. And at this point, as basically a middle-aged white male, uh, his book, Finding God in the Waves, about his spiritual journey, uh, probably more relevant would be You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass, his most recent book, which is about his, really about his emotional journey. And so hearing some stories like that, I think could be really beneficial. And if people want to connect with you, is there a way that is best for them to do that? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> That's not <very> good. <laughs> I could give my email address and phone number. That's about. I'm on Instagram. I never post. I have like maybe eight followers. I I don't need people to follow me. Uh, if you do, I promise you won't get a lot from me. So you won't mute me because I don't say anything. <laughs> 
So if you want to get in touch with Matt, hit me up and I'll <laughs> I'll help connect you. <laughs> That'll work. <laughs> All right, Matt. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on this uh, episode today. I really appreciated your insights. No, I appreciate the invitation, Ben. And uh, uh, thanks. I promise I'm not a sociopath. So <laughs> if you if you are listening and you do want to connect with me, I promise you'll be safe. <laughs> I can attest to that. I can attest to that. All right. Take care. Hey, you too. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Invisible Truths podcast. I hope you appreciated Matt and I's discussion about white masculinity and what it means for men to hold their emotions in general. I think this is an important topic that doesn't get discussed often enough, and so if you are interested in continuing the conversation or even deepening it, reach out to me on social media or send me an email. I'd love to connect more deeply around this issue. If you want to hear more from Matt and I, you can find us at the Center for Congregations podcast, which just launched last week. Our first episode features Mike McCark talking about where young people have gone in congregational life. So you can check that out anywhere you download podcasts. Finally, if you appreciate my work and want to support it, one way you can do that is by leaving a five-star rating and review. That way, others who might be interested in this podcast can find it more quickly. You can also consider becoming a Patreon member and supporting me so that I can continue to keep this podcast running and share stories from everyday people in everyday life. Once again, thank you for listening to this week's episode. I appreciate your support, and I appreciate the fact that you joined me week in and week out. Until next week, I'm Ben Tapper.